0: Cool.fm is the perfect station for music lovers who enjoy a mix of adult pop, modern country, and classic hits. Our unique blend of different genres creates an awesome listening experience that you won't find anywhere else. With Cool.fm, you don't have to constantly change stations to hear the music you love. Download the Live 365 app and start listening to our curated selection of modern adult and country hits as well as the classics you know and love. So tune in to Cool.fm and start enjoying the best of all your favorite music in one place. Hi, I'm Ben Humaneck, creator of Brody Can't Be Broken. You can find me on Ben Humaneck at Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you are watching and listening to Two Geeks Talking.
1: Good morning, afternoon, evening ruin. Two Geeks Talking is an entertainment industry interview show where we're creative people from the comic, film, TV, movie, and video game industries. And of course, I'm your host, Kurt Sasso. We're joined today by a very talented individual. He's not only a writer and artist, he is a very talented comic creator with an amazing comic that I just happened to read being published by a past guest on the show, Band of Bards. We're joined by the ever-talented Ben humanek creator of Brody Can't Be Broken, which is an epic Hello. title, by the way. How are you doing
0: today? I'm doing all right. We just got back from my daughter's soccer game oh. and they won, so that's... You don't want to like invest too much of your emotional energy into your nine-year-old's soccer game, but when they win, that feels pretty nice. Um, and then we just groomed my dog in a very um, haphazard fashion. So I think I found a skill set that I'm not really good at, which is um, dog dog maintenance. That's so good.
1: But emotional support for the loved ones is always a good uh, avenue to f- project the energy for.
0: Absolutely. 100%. Yes.
1: <laughs> it's called priorities in life. Like,
0: yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. You got to rank those things <laughs> for sure. Yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, For those that don't know anything about yourself as a creative person, tell us who you are and what you're bringing to Two Geeks Talking.
0: My name is Vin Humanek and I'm from the Houston, Texas area. And for the past uh, about 10 years, I've been working... Uh, In the small press comic scene, doing a variety of graphic novels and short stories uh, and graphic novellas, mostly directed at a teen reading audience, so middle grade and and young adults. And the most recent work that I just put out, the longest one that's been out for me recently, is Brody Can't Be Broken from Band of Bards. And it is a 64 page graphic novella. Two teens with some genetic gifting are responsible for defending a city from a demigod with a really huge anger complex. It's also a covert romance story in the process about how they kind of learn that invulnerability isn't just a tactic for saving the world. It's also a really poor tactic for uh, connecting with the person you care about. They've got to figure some things out there.
1: You know, what is the most misunderstood aspect about the young adult superhero genre that maybe people who don't follow it misunderstand? You know, that's a good question.
0: I think that there is a wider appetite for it than people may realize. So I'm a high school teacher by trade. I work with up to 150 uh, teenagers a year through the classes that I teach. Um, I teach high school juniors, and I also teach creative writing. One thing I see, especially with my boys, is that they are ready for manga, right? Like they are ready for action stories where teens, where young adults do stuff, learn about the world, emote very openly, have just absolutely awesome throw down fights. And I think one thing the direct market of comics is working to serve is how to appeal to that readership that's already into comics in some fashion, how to get them into stuff that's made locally in North America as well, additively, not to replace the manga market, but to come alongside it. So I think that understanding there's an appetite there and an audience there that wants good work, they just need to be introduced to it and brought into it, I think is a helpful thing as we look at Uh, comics industry where we've got a lot of players we've got a lot of good ideas and stories getting out on the table and i think there's continual room for expansion
1: the fact that looking at the story and it's a great it's a wonderful read it's a great batch of action and emotions everything like that the fact that you're also teaching the younger generation writing creative writing as well too you know what are you learning from the younger generation that maybe you didn't have growing up in your creative process
0: I think I'm learning that collaboration is key to making good stories and the courage to accept feedback uh, and do another draft gets you way farther than you can go on your own. By way of example, at this point in the year, I'm seeing my creative writing students kind of having these semi-permanent partnerships and they've developed trust among each other as storytellers where they can pass a draft, hear feedback and not feel wounded by that, right? If their story is not perfect the first time, they're in a place where they're able to accept that hey, it's not me, it's it's the story itself. Another pair of eyes does help me develop this and then they're able to take that feedback, turn it around and make a stronger product, which Is cool. That vulnerability that makes good writing possible. They're practicing with each other first. I love that. That's a really special thing.
1: Do you think this younger generation gets a a bad rap for the emotional climate that they're currently dealing with, especially when it comes to the creative process? hundred
0: percent. I'm definitely a, the kids are all right kind of person. And I I don't think that means that like we've got a utopian generation in the offing or that's already preceded them. But yeah, these are normal teenagers who are living in a, a different cultural and technological environment than my generation I'm a millennial for instance but yeah i think they're they're good at self monitoring i think there's a better conversation around mental health and a greater self awareness about that that they're bringing to the table and i think that is a positive thing for storytellers they're in a place where they they've got better access to understand and articulate how they feel about things and really the big part of storytelling is invoking emotion and so when i see my kids picking apart the latest episodes of the last of us and talking about how they cried deeply into their tissues you know in between Uh, Infected attacks or whatnot. It's it's cool. Uh, It's cool to see them grappling with it. And I think our current young generation, they're pretty brave. One. I think they're more resilient than we give them credit for because they've had to live through a pretty disruptive pandemic. It's in it. They still are aspirational about what they can accomplish and achieve for themselves in the future. And I love that. That gives me a lot of energy in life in my practice.
1: Why is, was Brody Can't Be Broken an important story for you?
0: Growing up specifically as a guy, I had an understanding that the way to function in the world was to kind of bury the extreme emotions in my life, which is hard because I'm also an English major and I have a lot of feelings. But you know, you kind of live in that in that friction between those ideas. And I think what I ended up doing with Brody was I was writing myself a metaphor about how this character whose his ability is basically that he can't be hurt he's got this this field this at field if you want to use evangelion uh, speak uh, evangelion speak there that prevents him from being hurt but it can only protect him and so he's essentially spent his young life being a first responder in disaster situations trying to help people where he can go in and you know, take some falling debris and be fine but as he faces an incident where protecting himself isn't enough and where he's got someone that he cares deeply for participating in this with him. I think he's beginning to learn that keeping your emotions closed off or pretending those don't affect you is actually not healthy. You've got to be vulnerable. You've got to let someone else in and that gives you the chance to connect and to aid and really make a difference. And I think that's something I've been working at in my 30s. Uh, I think I just wanted to write a story where someone was working that out way earlier. and and getting a better run at that before they hit their adult years and maybe use that as a chance to give my readers permission for themselves uh, to be more open and to let the slings and arrows of the world still affect them while charging forward bravely ahead
1: so then how did this affect you in your real life how did you translate the issues that you had that you've repressed and how did it come out in a maybe a healthier man.
0: In a lot of ways, I'm naming how I'm feeling much better now. i also a parent. We've got three kids under the age of nine in this house. And, and not to make it too psychological, but I think Kurt, I'm someone who's like denied anger for a long time. Uh, if we're going with the Enneagrams, I'm on the nine side where, you know, you have those like, I feel things, but I don't talk about them. You know, everything needs to be at peace. I think as my kids work with anger and conflict, we're learning it's better to give them equipment where they can say like, I'm feeling mad right now. And then that's a much better alternative than like, I hate you. I want to tear you apart, right? Like, well, that's extreme. I'm learning to do the same thing, to articulate when I'm angry or when I'm overwhelmed or God forbid to say to my wife, today was a tough day. Can I take 20 minutes? Can I step to the side instead of white knuckling my way through life and then just feeling grumpy later? The more we can say what we're feeling, the better we are. You know, in the story, Amanda, she's the co-protagonist. She's the character who does that. She has lived through kind of a really controlling situation in her past. She's trying to get over. She's got uh, some stigma in her life because of that. She's also really in tune with who she is, where she's at, what it takes to to make sure others are well cared for. Uh, she's able to name where she's at and to make sacrifice plays accordingly. So I think where Brody is like the growth factor. She's like the one who's gotten there and who's achieved it.
1: Being a writer and an artist when it comes to this creative process, other than having, say, your wife or your kids read over your final drafts, what was this journey like for you? What was the the initial concept that like created Brody and created your other characters? And, and how did that help you maybe on a therapeutic level creatively? Yeah,
0: that's a great question. Um, it came about when I saw uh, an anthology of shonen style fight comics that were made by Western indie creators. And I don't mean indie in terms of like they're working their way into like big two work. I mean indie in terms of kind of fanographics, you know, drawn in quarterly, uh, underground influenced crowd, just taking really left angle approaches to this medium. And so that started to stir in my mind what kind of story I'd want to tell if I had the chance. I'd like collaborating with other creators. I've drawn stories for other writers, for instance, working within the the North American uh, indie comics scene. And with this one, I wanted to do it solo soup to nuts just to push myself and see if I could grow. But I definitely had to invite people into the process to give feedback. So I got really valuable perspective from some fellow creators like CJ Hudson, Matt Pataglia, Doug Woods, Tony Williams, Fellhound, Mark Pate, and others that that I that credit and thank in the book. Because, you know, even though I'm trying to accomplish this myself, I'm not always the best judge of what I'm putting on the page. And I need someone to set me straight. I need help. As a big Star Trek fan, one of the, the famous uh, discussions that's had in the episode City of the Edge of Forever, On the Edge of Forever, where goes back in time and has to let this social worker die to prevent world war ii and they talk about how some of the most beautiful lines written in the english language are let me help possibly even more powerful than i love you i think i found that to be true in my comics journey as much as i want to do solo i still need help um and so therapeutically i think that got reinforced having a 64 page book to do by a specific deadline so that i could you know honor my obligations to band of bards it was important to get other people into the process and to say you know fully bards themselves was incredibly helpful also just to Tim Stolinski and Chris Benamonti—they're really encouraging guys who've got a great vision for what kind of comics they want to make, uh, and I think I've—I've I've found that they are—they're almost more like label managers for like an indie music project than they are uh, like people who are just kind of running a comics project amorphously from behind like a like a cloud computing a software platform or something like that. They're very hands-on and I like that.
1: Well I was actually that's a great segue into the question mm-hmm. I was gonna ask, which is, you know, how did you approach or did did you approach Bandit of bars or did they approach you? Like how did that conversation start? And You've already said so, that's apparently how it ends. So I, I
0: yeah, this is kind of goofy, but I, I hit them up very quickly once they opened submissions. Back in we'll have to correct the date on this. It was either late 2020 or early 2021. I basically submitted a longer form graphic novel project to them that I had been noodling on for quite a while. And they were interested. But as we discussed it, it became clear that this would be the kind of thing that would take two years minimum manpower to accomplish. And that wasn't going to be feasible for kind of both of our publishing objectives. So Having had this idea for kind of a shounen fight comic that I'd gotten elsewhere, I was like, maybe we could do a shorter project and get it to market quicker. And they were very open to that. I think some of it came from just timing, like knocking on their door very quickly and being like, hey, guys, being like, all right, this guy's got a lot of enthusiasm. (laughs) And then from there, like being really collaborative in the dialogue about what kind of book would best suit their mission and their model uh, within the scope of what I could accomplish.
1: Everyone usually asks, what's the wisest piece of advice or what's the most BS piece of advice? But what is the second (laughs) wisest piece of advice that you've received that has stuck with you in your career?
0: The second wisest piece of advice that I've gotten, I think is, because I know the first one, because I've said it recently in public, but I think the second one is that you're allowed to make B's or C's. And and I'm not saying that because I'm a teacher. I worked at a nonprofit Christian summer camp for a short period of time after college. And that was a chance to listen to other nonprofit leaders kind of about their philosophy of life. And I remember we had a guest speaker one time who was talking about a time where he was bivocationally pastoring a church, where he was raising a young family, and where he was attending a seminary. And he was not doing great in his seminary classes. He was just barely scraping by, just you know, not studying Greek enough or something. And he went to his professor he kind of talked about his stress about how he was not doing everything at 100%. And his professor was like, honestly, like you've got these other obligations that are more important. You need to allow yourself to make a, B or a like You're going to be fine if you don't make the top tier grade on this one. And so I think when it comes to creating comics, those are really important to me. I, I want a body of work that readers can interact with. Uh, be encouraged by, be entertained by, um, that will provoke them to thought. But I have higher obligations in my life too. Like I do have a family, I do have students. And so comics has to fit in the margins. And if I'm honest, there are some pages in Brody that are probably a B or C page. Um, I try to put as many A pages in there as possible. If my readers would do me a favor and skim past page 36 very quickly, no, I'm kidding. I don't know if it's that one person. And Kurt, not to turn it around on you, I know it's an interview podcast, but for yourself, you're incredibly productive interviewing people. Have you found that to be similarly true for yourself, where there are some things in life for you? You say, you know what? I've just got to show up today and do the okay effort and keep moving.
1: Perfect example for me is, and thanks for turning around on me, you know, getting going on <laughs> psychological back on me, you, bu- you bugger. <laughs> uh, for me, it was the end of last year, I was overwhelmed with a ton of interviews. I had five or six interviews that I I didn't get to at the end of last year that I finally mm-hmm. got to this year. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of content later, uh, like earlier on where you could see a change in format or or not as tight format as I had created with my my more current season this year, you could tell the difference. Were they bad interviews? No, none whatsoever. I have so much on the go. I did 103 interviews last year. Oh my gosh. Actually it was 108 in total, but those five rolled over into this season. And that's six hours of editing. That's a bunch of Mm -hmm. hours when it comes to formatting it down. That's getting a podcast up and getting the word out social media wise. There's all these little things that add up that people don't realize what gets put into this show. And then changing of uh, the format from adding both a free service and a paid service as well. Because for 15 Uh years, I had never had a paid service because I didn't feel like the show would benefit from paid service. Or rather, Uh I didn't think that people would pay is Mm-hmm. my ultimate goal so mm-hmm. we all want to be paid for our, our productivity and we all want to be mm-hmm. paid for what we're creating here and you know selling a, a comic book putting yourself out there and we're selling ourselves and selling shape or form do we have enough value for ourselves when it comes mm-hmm. to what we feel like we're worth 10 or so years ago i should have started a paid service for 25 bucks or something like that you know something mm-hmm to set that bar mm-hmm. but i didn't because i didn't think people would think that there was value in this show that's on me <laughs> but you know how about mm-hmm. yourself as, as a creative person did have you felt that you're not enough for what you're creating even though you know you have the talent and the drive to do what you're doing oh my gosh
0: 100 percent. we've all got imposter syndrome out here don't we it's like a conspiracy where we're just gonna keep pumping each other up probably a uh, a benevolent conspiracy i would say because we do need that encouragement yeah i mean I, and i love how you're painting the picture about like taking the step of putting value in your work like asserting that for yourself and saying that does matter i think that's true i think for myself anytime i create a project to put in the world i've got to have like a small amount of foolishness and a heaping helping of courage <laughs> to take the step to submit that out there and i think publishing is a really helpful way to do that because you submit to an organization that can carry your work and the submission and the rejection are usually an invisible process to the outside reader so if you're the kind of person who worries about saving face, and I think we all do to some degree, working your way through the publishing route is uh, probably a helpful way to do that because you can take your time, you can pace yourself, you can process the inevitable rejections because everyone does get those. Not every project's right, and then when one hits, you just go for it like crazy. And then when you feel like you're failing, you ask your friends for uh, for insight and how do I make this better? So, but I think you know the act of publicly podcasting regularly getting material that's such a visible thing, and so I think that's huge. You know, hearing that self knowledge you've got hard one after decade plus in this business about hey this is how we're doing it and and this is how we continue to make it better even as we've already crafted this huge skill set around it just, yeah absolutely
1: but we evolve as as creative people like for for <laughs> my stuff if you look back on tooth when i started in 2008 versus what we're currently doing now age and wisdom help <laughs> For <laughs> sure. quite literally yeah. for any creative process, not just podcasting, yeah. but obviously, mm-hmm. especially with writing and, and art, yeah. you evolve as a creative person. You evolve in your style. Your voice changes and, and gets different as you either get older or you learn new things mm-hmm. about yourself. And you have kind of hinting at it as you've been talking with us during the show itself here is your family is informing your speech in terms of your writing. You're mm-hmm. being an English teacher, teaching the younger generation is informing your creativity in some way, shape or form, consciously. Subconsciously, so I think, yeah. you know, we, we're evolving as people, and and what we put out to the masses is it's our footprint in this ever-changing world. Mm,
0: that's a really good word. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it feels counterintuitive to have a growth mindset towards that, but you don't make vibrant work unless you're growing, and you've got to be willing to. Let your mistakes be shown somewhat. And I'll ask one more question, not to derail this too much here. But Kurt, we've basically had therapy hour together and what a wonderful thing that we get this together. Do you find yourself going back to your backlog and looking at something from 2008 or you know 17 or whatever and just kind of examining where you've been at in your craft versus where you're at now? Cause I know I do that with my comics for sure.
1: Subconsciously I do. I have everything backed up, but I know where I started because it's ever present in my mind when I'm asking questions, when I'm interviewing people. I know when we first started, When I first started, I was a completely different person compared to where I am today. And I know that because it was a different atmosphere 15 years ago. Like it's amazing how fast not only technology, but yourself changes because I may not show it, but I I was a severely introverted person. I still am to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. I just hide it very well in an extroverted (laughs) manner. Right. But I know when we were doing two hour interviews, audio interviews, with no breaks whatsoever and continuously talking and filling in air and everything like that versus a a tighter interview that I'm currently doing now, 32 minutes to an hour. The questions are completely different. Myself, I'm completely different. I used to have a co-host that was an amazing person to work with. He went off in a different direction. Now I had to take the mantle at episode 61, set a precedence for myself. How do I keep things engaging? How do I engage with with the people? I've changed up my questions. I have 300 questions in a document in front of me currently that I've collected over 15 years, you know, and Mm -hmm. I pick and choose as we go. I'll change up my questions uh, probably every couple of years. But the questions I've been asking recently have been really inspiring and very eye-opening. And it really dives more deeper than the cookie-cutter questions that maybe other shows talk about. So that's why mm-hmm. I think of this show more as an inside the actor studio mm-hmm. than uh, when I first started where it was the Wild West of podcasting, where I was... Mm-hmm. on when Mark Maron and Joe Rogan started their podcast. Actually, I was earlier than them.
0: On the cutting edge right there, man. Exactly. you're out there with uh, with what, Word Balloon and some of those Vanguard podcasts, so that's uh, huge.
1: You can share this with your kids, basically. Hey, look, I'm that's cool, right. I was on a podcast, see, see? It's like, okay, What's that's up, guys? True.
0: Yes, <laughs> I gotta spend some time with Kurt, guys. Listen, listen, this is good.
1: What was an early experience where you learned that language had power? My gosh.
0: I love the depth of that question. I think it took some time for me to really learn that in my life because I grew up in kind of twin traditions. I was schooled in a normal public school scenario my entire life, and so always found a great love for reading and learning. But I also came up in a pretty steady religious tradition where I was attending uh, religious services on a weekly basis and, and hearing teaching from the scripture that my tradition uses. And so I think I knew I was on the receiving end of powerful words for a long time in my life, but I think it really began to soak in when I was encouraged by some college professors about how language and literature could be a vocation. I had a professor at Baylor, his name was Dr. Tom Hanks. He's not the actor, he's a very different person, but such a gentle and wise and learned man. And I remember one time I accidentally slept a test in his class. It was my freshman year and I was an idiot. And he called me. And on the other end of the line, I pick it up in a panic and he's like, Benjamin, this is Dr. Hanks. I wanted to let you know the test is in progress. Would you'd like to come down here, I think you can still accomplish it. And I was like, yes, sir. And I'm like f- running out the door. But I think the gentle act of somebody who was a medieval literature scholar, taking time to call a dumb freshman and say, hey, you can still get here and get credit for the test if you move. That said something profound to me about how humility and restraint and compassion can be expressed even from someone who's got a great command of language. And I think through people like him and the other professors that I got to have at Baylor, like Dr. Linda Walker Kennedy being a standout one for me, uh, I think they just showed that a love of how words are crafted on the page and how communication is compassionately or passionately delivered uh, can make a huge difference in slightly redirecting the course of a reader's life or a student's life or a friend's life. The tradition I come from, there's a, a guy named James. He was the brother of Jesus of Nazareth. He writes about how the tongue is like a rudder on a ship like slightly redirect something very large uh and i think the more i go through life and the more i tell stories and hear stories the more i see that's true
1: <laughs> it's amazing what you learn from college and, and life and how they merge to form inform yourself as, as a person and i'm sure yeah. what you learned at baylor and, and what you learned as a teacher yourself i think is an amazing change in a person's life because I'm, I'm sure religion helps in some way shape or form and it mm. informs you in, in a theological aspect and, and in life as well too and not to say that that influences your your creativity but it can i'm sure mm. definitely it's, it's interesting sure. to see your path in life as well. how do you think the birth of creativity was formed
0: oh what you mean like personally or like cosmologically? like Where did creativity come from? That's Thank you. Oh, I like that. That's a broad question. I will steal from somebody. And I think this is actually where creativity comes from. But J.R.R. Tolkien, who was originally a linguist, right? He, he set out to write his books because he was busy inventing made-up languages from like Norse backgrounds and stuff. Uh, he talked about this idea of people being sub-creators. And he was a deist. He was specifically a Catholic. But Tolkien believed that a creative mind gave birth to humanity. And one of the inheritances of human beings is to be sub creators to take the raw material of life that we live in and then to use that to participate in creative acts as well and i think charitable minds can disagree and differ on this but i certainly like the idea of being a sub creator my students study emerson and thoreau and uh, these guys are kind of are general in their approach to like spirituality but i think they strike on something where they talk about how nature is powerful and can influence people and really inspire us and i think every human being has the ability to stand out in the world and be awed by things that are greater than them, to be horrified by things that fall short of human compassion, to be informed by those experiences, to communicate them to others and to move them. And so I think the idea of being sub-creators, taking the raw material of reality to do this kind of work, actually gives us permission to be a little braver because we're not making anything new. We're just making something unique and distinct out of what's already there. And we're speaking with our voice full-throated. How could we go terribly wrong if that's the case, if we're being responsible with the raw materials of life that we're entrusting ourselves with? Maybe that's a little too poetic for Saturday morning, but the English teacher has come out and I can't put it back in the box now. I'm so sorry, Kurt.
1: Honestly, that's what I was expecting. Wait till we get to our, our more introspective questions. Okay. Is there a comic that made you feel the way you hope readers of your work will feel after reading
0: it? I'm thinking about how to formulate a response because the works that have informed me most strongly as a comics reader are things that have a darker tinge to them. I think about the class of 86, you've got Watchmen, you've got Dark Knight Returns, these rich literary books that kind of change the direction of North American comics. I think for me, this is actually less informed by the comics reading I've done and more by uh, televised media. I think of the optimism of Star Trek where you take flawed but aspirational people, and you put them in a circumstance where they can not only grow themselves, but also help others. And I think of Evangelion, which is a a very bare-knuckle anime about what is the effect of trauma when it comes to trying to save the world, and specifically, how do we overcome our fear of wounding ourselves and others, that kind of hedgehog's dilemma. I think I wanted to fuse those two thoughts. How do I make a more optimistic version of Evangelion? How do I make a Star Trek story where we take some real scrapes on the knuckles, uh, to get to a better world. And so I think those are the biggest vibes that came in here. Now, albeit with a healthy dose of, I'm thinking of like Daniel Warren Johnson when I'm trying to draw pages or when I'm trying to find that balance between really brutal action and heartfelt conclusions. I, of course, cannot draw nearly as well as that master, but but that's a high bar to set, right? That's what you're kind of, kind of jumping after here. I also think John Romita Jr. storytelling is just so fundamentally sound and kinetic. I was chasing a lot of what I grew up reading from his Amazing Spider-Man work, for instance, because that's one of the key characters that got me into comics. Uh, Those things definitely informed it as well, in a big way.
1: Everyone has one person that inspired them on their path to where they are today. Who was that for you?
0: Feels like a conglomeration, and maybe that's cheating with the question. I think I'll pick one who's relevant. The person that I've dedicated this current book to is a man named Rick Brooks. Rick and I have a lot of similarities. We're both public school educators. We both love comics and make comics. Rick is uh, about 30 years further along in life than I am. From the beginning of my time tabling at conventions in Texas, when I would table at a show with Rick, he took an interest in me, um, just to check in on me and see how I was doing, to show me stuff he was working on, to give me pointers on my art, one time he gifted me an original Superman page that he'd gotten from Carrie Gamble, who is just a fantastic artist, just as a sign of encouragement and affection. I think I saw Rick be both a cartoonist and a mentor in his professional practice and in the independent comic scene. And that made me want to be the same kind of person, to see that there's a continuity there, right? That the work you make and the way you encourage and help others are two sides of the same point. They're not separate, they're not compartmentalized. And so I dedicated this book to Rick because he was so fundamental and encouraging me and saying you can do this same thing that i'm doing now rick has achieved some great things he's got a strip in multiple papers across texas he's part of the national cartoonist society that is one of the highest memberships you can achieve as a working cartoonist in the united states so he's really he's really gotten to a lot of places and uh, he continues to be someone who i aspire to be like and also who inspires me
1: from a professional standpoint you are of course a successful English teacher. You are a successful comic creator. You are being published by Band of Bards. And I'm sure you have many mm-hmm. projects on the go that I can't wait to hear about and, and see. Uh-huh. talk to you about in the future. So please come on back anytime here. From a professional standpoint, you are successful. Do you consider yourself personally successful?
0: I like think this is really good. No, not yet. I don't think so. I think I'm in the middle of a long race. I was a cross country runner in high school and I didn't want to sprint that felt painful, Uh, but running for a long distance felt achievable. And I think I've began viewing my life in the past couple of years as just a really long-term race and you've got to show up and you've got to keep putting the steps in and keep hitting your markers. Um, I think I will feel most accomplished when I have finished my race at the end of my life. And I am content to run steadily until I get to that point. You know, one marker of that I'm not a full-time comics creator. Um, Honestly, a lot of indie folks working in the North American scene aren't. We can't afford to be. The market's not a place yet where it can make that feasible for a wide amount of people. But I see myself teaching and creating comics in parallel until I retire from the education profession in my 60s. And then that'll be my chance to go whole hog into making comics that I've accumulated 40 years of experience, you know, uh, learning to create. So I think success is the end of the race. I think I'm still in the middle of it. Uh, I'm content to continue to run. Hopefully I can avoid the Charlie horses and the, the hamstring pulls that, that go along with that. I have to be well hydrated. I don't know what the metaphor is for the hydration, but I just, you know, <laughs> I got to make sure I'm taking care of myself and I'm pacing myself. I think that's the biggest thing.
1: You're hydrating with creativity, I think. That, that.
0: Yes, that's right. That's right. I'm watching things that feed the soul. Yeah.
1: The reverse of success is failure. How do you deal with your failures?
0: I try to learn from it. I try and... I try to run from it. I really want to run from failure. Like, I don't. I don't like feeling like I did bad. But failure is not final. Gosh, I'm a hypocrite if I tell stories where flawed characters fail before they hit the third act and things turn around, and then I don't accept failure for myself. I'm I'm a hypocrite if I don't allow my students to make a poor grade and then try harder for the next assignment. I think we we all have to reckon with failure's role in our lives, which isn't to kneecap us, uh, but to teach us. If we can learn from that, absorb those lessons and keep going. Uh, And courageously try something new. Failure never has to be the end. With the exception of maybe a failure that hurts somebody deliberately. I think in that case, that's where you disqualify yourself. If you are just working your craft, working your profession, growing as a person, failure is always a chance to open a new door to somewhere that you probably ought to be. And I want to keep embracing that.
1: The younger generation is looking at your work and they're becoming inspired to be creative in some way, shape, or form. And the fact that not only do you have your children as a younger generation, you're also teaching younger generation to be creative with their writing and within life creatively you are molding that next generation how can they inspire the generation that follows them
0: Mm, i think share generously when you're a creative person whether you're podcasting or making comics or you want to get into short film or you want to be influential on a social media platform you're going to look at people who have already been successful like you're going to want those leads so i think hoarding your secrets as if it's like dragon's gold that only leads to decay i think my younger creative students who are on their way up the ones that i see being generous and creating opportunities to share knowledge or to do something together or be in a club or participate or collaborate i think those are the ones that are going to go the farthest because just like love with creativity the more of it you give away the more of it you bless people with healthily um, the more it comes back to you Um, i think that is a beautiful law of the universe and uh, the way that Some of my students are already getting that. It gives me great hope for the creative class of the future.
1: If your life was a comic book, what would its title be? And what would its soundtrack be? Oh, my goodness.
0: There is an electronic music artist out of New York called, uh, his name is John Jagos, but his act is Brother Tiger. And Brother Tiger, are you familiar with him? Yeah. That's delightful. I love Brother Tiger stuff. I mean, he can turn around and cover tears for fears and do a very credible job. Um, or he can do you know four albums of just like live ambient music he's always got something different to say and he keeps changing up his sound but at all the same source i love brother Tigers stuff there's like intensity and, and rhythm and energy but also relaxed pace to some of it so i would love that to be the soundtrack and if i'm gonna steal that name then maybe i should title my comic book a brother to tigers and talk about the different tigers that i try to grab by the tail in life, creatively, how I earn my stripes in the process. And Calvin and Hobbes was influential and Hobbes was a tiger. So there you, there go. you go. It's right it's there.
1: It's all there. It's, it's all connected, man. It's all connected. It's connected. Yes. <laughs> well, Ben, I do hate to say, but that ends this particular episode of Two Geeks Talking. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate your generosity, Kurt.
1: Anytime. And before I let you go, where can we find you? How can we support your course, where can we find Brody and uh, anything else you'd like to promote?
0: Absolutely. Brody Can't Be Broken is available on Global Comics. You can read it as a digital comic. It's also available from Band of Bards directly at uh, bandofbards.com on their Bard Shop. Some of my previous work in print uh, can be found on Amazon. My comics, Waking Life with Comicer Press, it will be found on there, uh, as well as The Magnificent Makers, which is a four book middle grade series that I've worked on previously. Keep your eyes peeled for this year. I've got a couple of short stories coming out in a variety of anthologies. Uh, i'll be in critical mass from odyssey comics i'll have a story with Stony williams in kalulu invades neverland from orange cone productions and travis gibb and then i've got uh, another Kalulu piece coming out from dream productions and i've also got a piece in limit break comics uh, fractured realms anthology so A lot of short stories coming from Ben this year. You know, keep your eye on the crowdfunding sites because I'll be around.
1: (laughs) Well, like I said, that ends this particular episode of Two Geeks Talk. Again, of course, find this interview and a thousand plus others on our website, tgtmedia.com or twogeekstalking.com. That's the word two, not the number two. Website's going through a revamp, so please go to our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash c forward slash tgtmedia. Podcast is finally back after 15 years because, you know, reasons. And it is on 2geekstalking.podme.com. Search for 2 Geeks Talking and the audio streaming service, and you should be able to find it. Please like and subscribe there as well, too. It does give me a little warm, fuzzy feeling when you actually do that because it makes my life, you know, meaningful and worthwhile just because, you know, I, I, I'm in a void. So please... Please help out that way. (laughs) And as I say, every week, everyone has a story to tell. It's up to me to help bring that out. Thanks for listening and watching on Two Geeks Talking.